Rude Awakenings, Chapter 7, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. After crossing the great Gundak into Bihar, and having spent the night by the river, our two pilgrims make their way east to a nature reserve and the site of one of the Ashokan pillars. Chapter 7 The Kingdom of the Law Achan Suchito Homage to the Buddha Homage to all the Buddhas, the great sages who have arisen in the world. This is the English version of one of my much-repeated mantras, a recitation of the names and virtues of the 28 Buddhas, of whom Gautama was the most recent. This chant was supposed to have a protective influence, at least reciting it while fingering the 28-bead mala. It cast the benevolent mood around the mixed bag and mental states and sensory impingement coming my way. We were leaving Uttar Pradesh and entering Bihar. At the time of the Buddha, the Gandak River was also a boundary. To the west lay the Republic of the Malas, a vassal state of the powerful kingdom of Kosala. To the east were the Federation of Republics known as the Vajian Confederacy. Shortly after the Buddha's death, the whole region was conquered by Ajatasattu, who subsumed it into his kingdom of Magadha, the heart of what under Ashoka in the 3rd century BCE came to be the first and greatest Indian Empire. I'd woken up cold in the dark, my legs aching from the hard ground. Orion had gone, and my mind was full of mud. In that fuddle and gloom we lost something most every morning, candles, items of clothing, whatever. India took them all in exchange for the mud and grit she bestowed upon us. This morning it was sand, pasted on our sleeping gear by the heavy dew that we packed away and carried in our bags. We struggled east across the dunes into a harsh sunrise. Through squinting eyes a new land eventually appeared, a village, cultivation and a road and that feeling of returning to more welcoming ways. So it seemed at first, as we stood on the road from the river, and people came rushing towards us. But no, they were following two cantering horses, dragging a cart our way to the river bank. Drums were pounding. The men running behind the cart were beating drums. And as the cart rattled by, we were greeted by a pale, thin hand, hanging out from beneath the white cloth bundle on the back of the cart. Welcome to Bihar. The heavy odour of the corpse was unmistakable. I gently put my hands in Anjali and bowed my head. Our pilgrimage had arrived at death. 
one of the principal gateways to the realm of Dhamma. Nick Scott The road we were now on led to Betia, the local big town, but we were looking out for Udapur Nature Reserve. It was a quiet road, with just a few bicycles and the occasional vehicle. We walked till ten o'clock, the time we'd stopped for food, and then turned off at the next huddle of houses. We found ourselves in a relatively large and prosperous-looking village, and as we walked slowly through, an old man called us over to sit on rope beds on the veranda of his house. Small and slightly stooped, he was a quiet and gentle soul who smiled at Ajahn Suchito's attempts at Hindi. Instead of replying, he went off and returned with a much younger man who spoke good English. The old man had him find out if we could take food and what we could eat and then withdrew to leave us to talk. The young man was a very different character, robust and confident. He was the old man's nephew and home on leave from the army. A sub-lieutenant in a regiment posted to the Punjab he had recently married and was here to visit his new wife in their small house round the corner. He came from one of the wealthier families in the village and we were introduced to some of his older and more important relations who began to accumulate while the old man we had first met sat in the background. The army officer told us that the nature reserve was nearby, just behind the village. There was a lake and some of the villagers had boats that they'd used to cross to where the rest house was. He hadn't been into the sanctuary for a long time, however, as it had become the base for a gang of local dacoits, Indian bandits. The poorer villagers could go, and he thought we'd be all right. But if the dacoits saw him, they'd take him captive and demand a ransom from his family. There was nothing to be done but pay up, as the local police were bribed by the Dacoits to leave them alone. The Dacoits had turned to kidnapping when the bank was built in the village and they could no longer rob the landowners direct. The bank was pointed out to us, a one-room building across the village, closed when we arrived, the steel-shuttered front had since been opened. Dacoits are common in this the most lawless and corrupt state in India. After independence, the new Indian government tried to do something about the unequal distribution of land, taking some from the big landowners to give small plots to the poor. In much of India, they made at least some headway, but not in Bihar. This state was already known for the corruption of its officials, and it was they who frustrated the government's good intentions. As a result, the only way out for the poor and here that meant the untouchables, was either to go to the towns and cities or turn to crime. The dacoits are the revenge of the untouchables. We were fed with food brought to us by the old man. He still said little, being more concerned with our welfare than who we were. First there was the water, poured over our hands into a bowl, 
then big stainless steel platters placed in front of each of us to eat from. We sat on mats on the dirt floor and ate as one does in India with the right hand. Then after more water for washing our hands again, we could return to the rope beds as our plates disappeared back to the kitchen and to the cooks we never saw. Having sat and talked for a while, we thanked them and left the village following the nephew's directions. The possibility of going by boat had been mentioned, but nothing came of it, and so we had to go the long way round, by the road. I discovered Udapur Nature Reserve in a typically Indian leaflet on the wildlife of Bihar. This simply listed all the state's nature reserves with a line or two of information on each, including the district name and the nearest railway station. Udapur Sanctuary, 6 square kilometres, wetland and forest, with resident waterfowl and migrants. Best time to visit, November to March, one rest house, 5 rupees. I knew India well enough to take all that with a pinch of salt. Still, as we'd be passing, it seemed a good idea to check it out. The idea of a roof over our heads with a bird sanctuary outside was appealing to both of us. And if it really was there, we could stop for a day's rest. We knew we had reached the sanctuary by the forest department sign and the sudden complete absence of trees. Up till then, We'd been passing groves of mangoes and occasional trees on field edges and beside the road. These trees were all owned by someone and thus protected. The trees in the nature reserve were owned by the government and so had become fair game. Ahead of us, each side of the road was a wasteland of dead tree stumps and bare ground. The forestry department had been trying to rectify this lack recently and there were a few newly planted trees amidst the stumps of the old ones. As we went further into the sanctuary, things got better, and the stumps became stunted regrown trees. It was about then that we met one of the forest guards coming down the road in his uniform of green, rough cotton trousers and jacket. The guard escorted us to the rest house, which from a distance looked a great place to stay. It must have once been a shooting lodge and was built in the grand style of the British Raj, a large bungalow with a wide veranda. But as we got nearer, it became clear that the lodge had been as well looked after as the forest. All was decay and lack of care. Doors and windows were broken, gutters and pipes gone, and the woodwork had not seen paint for many years. Still, the roof was mostly there, and the guards were happy for us to stay. There were three of them, and the senior one insisted that one of them would stay the night to protect us. They told us that the sanctuary had once been the local Raja's shikar, or hunting area. Like so many shikars, it had fallen on hard times with the coming of the Indian state, and the end of the local Raja's control. The lodge was now used as the guard's base during the day, but it obviously hadn't been used for sleeping in for years. Once we'd settled in, laying out our things on the floor of one of the bedrooms, mindful to avoid the rotten parts, 
I went looking for wildlife. The lodge was beside a small lake that was fringed with reeds and surrounded by trees. The trees were in a much better state than those we had passed on the way in, but of the resident waterfowl and migrant birds there was no sign. I did find a noisy troop of rhesus monkeys swinging about in a lakeside tree, but none of the birds mentioned in the leaflet. Next morning I found out why. I'd set off early with my binoculars to see if anything more could be found at first light. There were still no birds about, but what I did find were the decoits. I walked round a bend to come across ten of them, young, dark-skinned and tough-looking, but well-dressed and sporting thick black moustaches. They had rifles on their shoulders, bandoleros full of bullets across their chests, and rather incongruously, black Indian bicycles by their side. They were as surprised to see me as I was to find them, and for a moment we all just stood there. Then one of them said something in Hindi and gestured. I think he meant me to come over, but I felt best staying where I was. A man with them had a little English, and through him they demanded to know who I was, what I was doing, and whether I had companions. I played it as confidently as I could, looking stern and answering their questions in a perfunctory manner. And I told them, no, they couldn't see what was in the belt under my trousers when they asked. Both passports, our travellers' checks, and all our money. One of them was obviously the leader. He was doing most of the questioning, was the best dressed, with a richly brocaded waistcoat and rings on his fingers, and he had the best rifle. It was a proper modern one, while most of the others had ancient-looking muskets. When he pointed at my binoculars and had the English speaker ask what they were, I let him use them. He had never used a pair before, and once I had shown him which way round to hold them, he was really impressed. That reduced the tension. I explained with sign language about bird-watching, showing him the birds in my bird-book. He nodded and indicated, using his rifle to point at the trees, that these were the birds they shot. After that, things got quite friendly, and I told him about our pilgrimage. When I bade them farewell, the man with the little English told me not to tell the guards we'd met him. Then I walked quickly back to the rest-house, vowing never again to go off walking alone with all our valuables. At the rest-house, the head guard had returned with flour, rice, dal and vegetables, and was cooking us a meal. He acted surprised when I mentioned the decoits. Later, during our meal, the man who'd been translating for the decoits turned up. He appeared to be some kind of assistant to the forest guards. He looked furtive and said nothing to us. But I couldn't believe that the guards didn't know all about the decoits. I had met them only a few hundred yards from the rest house, but they wouldn't admit it. We spent two nights there, both of us using much of the time to sit alone by the lake, enjoying the feeling of not having to go anywhere. It was a lovely stop, or at least it was for me. Ajahn Suchito had dysentery. It was his turn. 
he had been feeling bad for a couple of days, but he hadn't told me. For him, the stop at the nature reserve was timely, a chance to get over the worst of it. He also used it to catch up on writing his diary, which could get days behind when we were on the road. The last morning, the guards made us parottas, flat round breads fried in ghee for breakfast, and we gave each of them one of our photos. The day before, they'd refused my offers to pay for the food and the photos seemed a very small gift for their hospitality. We made our goodbyes, and the same guard who'd led us in now led us out onto the road to Bethia. Achansuchito even so have I, because, seen an ancient path, an ancient road traversed by the rightly enlightened ones of former times. This noble eightfold path, that is, right views, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This, because, is that ancient path, that ancient road traversed by the rightly enlightened ones of former times. Along that I have gone, and going along it I have fully come to know decay and death. I have fully come to know the arising of decay and death. I have fully come to know the ceasing of decay and death. I have fully come to know the way going to the ceasing of decay and death. Dhamma practice often entails confronting the unpalatable until one's reactions have cooled. Then by holding the attention steady, it becomes clear that things are actually only the way things appear. An appearance compounded by reactions and assumptions reinforced by the resistance to change and letting go. But observation alone is not enough when the mind's eye is clouded. Heart-centred action is needed, so practice becomes a moving thing, a pilgrimage. Keep going, says the Buddha, hold steady, relax the will to be, and you arrive at a place of peace. An island which you cannot go beyond a place of non-possession and a non-attachment. I call it Nibbana. While I was meditating by the lake at Udaipur, November 25th made an appearance and Nick said it was time to go. It was early morning and we were off to see the Ashokan Pillar at Lorya Nandangar, some distance to the north of Betia. We arrived at Betia a few hours later as the day was heating up and my energies were melting into a groggy puddle. There were blackened buildings, some in Mughal style, which must have been grand palaces once, and some Victorian style Raj buildings, also going to dissolution, cracked and crumbling with neglect, their gardens overgrown. Meanwhile, the streets bustled. 
We reached a bus station throbbing with revving old biscuit tins, swathed in divine titles like Lakshmi Express. The charioteers were belling, Chalo! Chalo! And we bought into that urgency, hastily scrambling onto a half-empty bus that was making every appearance of moving out of the station. But it was only an appearance. The game was this. The bus does not leave until it is crammed full to overflowing with passengers. Passengers, on the other hand, are only going to board the bus that is leaving first. Hence a bluffing tactic ensues, whereby several buses pretend to be leaving, moving slowly forward with a lot of revving and hollering and let's go, while people mill around undecided. A courtship dance. The virtual reality of departure becomes actual at a critical moment when conviction occurs that a certain bus really is leaving and its forward juddering and hollering brings about a quantum leap in passengers. As with mental events, an irrational conviction in one of a series of choices occurs and then the reasons and events back it up. Suddenly, we had action. The bus was leaving and crammed full at the same time with the conductor shoehorning flailing bodies and bags around or on top of the seats and the engine then clambering up onto the roof to arrange the human cargo and somehow collect fares. The avalanche had swept me into a seat next to the aisle. Nick was on top of the engine, having an argument with the conductor through the latticework of bodies as to how many person spaces his bag was taking up. The conductor was managing to get into high dudgeon, refusing to accept any fare at all when Nick would pay for only three. The duel was settled by Nick shoving the money into the conductor's shirt pocket. After an appropriate time in this mass of flesh, we were delivered to Loria Nandangar. The scene was of a huge fair, about ten acres of canvas-covered stalls and pavilions around the great Ashokan pillar. Even with my weak eyesight, I could see the Ashokan lion on top of the smooth column, looking like he was trying to escape the mayhem around him. The dusty road at our feet was lined with the usual melange of stalls and vendors, men on bikes or squatting by the road, and women, always in that characteristic pose, one arm raised to support the pitcher or bundle on the head, the sari falling in drapes to the ankles with their anklets. Out of this timeless Indian cameo stopped our latest friend, a teenager wearing Western clothing. He invited us for a meal and led us through the fair, though I was feeling too sick and dizzy to want to focus on what was being sold. Nick kept up the conversation as we hovered by the Ashokan column. The Emperor Ashoka, having converted to Buddhism, had erected stupas, stone tablets and pillars all around his vast empire. The tablets and the ten pillars remaining today have inscriptions on them that generally outline some aspect of the emperor's policy of righteous rule. Sometimes these edicts are quite specific, prohibiting the slaughter of animals or proclaiming the establishment of imperial officers to ensure for the well-being of the populace. But more consistently, they express Ashoka's sincere wish for Dhamma, religiously based law, to prevail. Although his own inclination was towards the Buddha's Dharma, Ashoka, referred to in the edicts as beloved of the gods, displays therein a paternal benevolence towards the other religions of his empire. 
It was a short-lived episode in Indian history, remarkable in that, despite the size of the empire and its high degree of order and integrity, Ashoka's reign was subsequently forgotten. The mainstream of Indian culture swung against the religion that had no place reserved for Brahmins. In the historical records that the Brahmins preserved, there's only the briefest cryptic mention of the great Buddhist emperor. As Buddhism died out in India, legendary accounts of Ashoka by Buddhists in other countries were the only records, and they could be dismissed as fanciful parables. Even the pillars and edicts could not hold out against ignorance. The Brahmi script that the edicts were inscribed with was forgotten, even by the time the indomitable Chinese pilgrim Farsien came through at the beginning of the 5th century CE. In later years, the pillars were worshipped as Shiva lingams, probably ensuring fertility, or occasionally conjectured to be the walking sticks of Bhima, one of the heroes of the Hindu epic Mahabharata. It wasn't until 1837 when James Princep translated the script and George Turnour connected them to the Ashoka of Buddhist legend that legends were held to encase her historical core. History had not yet arrived at Laurier Nandangar. Here, the pillar was the object of an unenlightened, though considerable, devotion. People were fervently throwing paisa coins, rice and flowers at the column, women with ochre pigment daubed in their hair, nose rings flashing, a scent of perfume and mild delirium. Behind the railing surrounding the pillar, small boys scampered to gather what they could, we didn't stay long. I needed to get out of the tumult and headed for a nearby Rama temple. There I could sit on the cool stone with my back against the wall to wait for Nick, who had stayed to look at the fair. Nick Scott. The fair was a large bazaar of tented stalls and crisscrossing alleyways, all covered over with canvas, which radiated out from the Ashokan column, the excuse for everything else. The alleyways were narrow and crowded, so I soon lost my sense of direction. There was a system to it, though. Stalls selling the same thing were together. We had eaten in one of several selling cooked foods and we finished the meal with tea and milk sweets I bought from one of the stalls further down that alleyway, which had piles of exotic-looking sweets in a variety of colours. Beyond them were stalls selling cloth, stalls selling toys, and even stalls selling travelling trunks. Everything that could be found in a city bazaar was here. I guessed it all must travel from fair to fair around the countryside, serving the country people. There were none of the game booths and rides we have at our fairs in the West, but what I did find, at the end of an alleyway that brought me back to the main entrance and the Ashokan column, were two marquees, the canvas doorway of each flanked by men dressed in colourful costumes with white grease paint faces. Each pair was dressed as a man and a woman and was calling out to people to come into the marquees. There must have been a play inside, I could hear the voices of actors and laughter. 
although I wanted to go in. I thought better of it. Ajahn Suchito had looked slightly disapproving of me just going round the fair in the first place. Instead, I collected the young man, left Ajahn Suchito to rest at the temple, and went off to have another go at repairing Ajahn Suchito's sleeping mat. I tried to fix it several times, using glue and patches bought from bicycle repair stores, but each time the patches had come unstuck. The glue was for rubber, and the mat was nylon. They might work for one night, but by the next, the mat was again slowly deflating, leaving Ajahn Suchito lying on hard ground by morning. He was resigned to it. It fitted his view of the world as an innately unsatisfactory place. But I was determined to fix it. I had suggested, before we left England, that an inflatable mat would be a liability, but it had been given to him by another monk specifically for the journey, and so he wanted to bring it. Inflatable mats are meant for domestic campsites and not for sleeping outdoors in India, where it was soon punctured by thorns. I showed the lad the mat, and he suggested that we take it to a shoe repairman. They are everywhere in India, ready to polish shoes, to repair them, or to repair anything else made of leather or canvas. Squatting on the pavement, with the tools of their trade in a box by their side. The first one we stopped to ask was a young guy. He took the mat when I produced it, and I pointed out the two bicycle patches now peeling off, and the small holes revealed beneath. I showed him how the mat inflated, so that he could see why the holes were a problem. What he thought the mat was used for is anyone's guess. He lifted the patches and looked at the holes, felt the material, and then said something in Hindi, pointing down the road. All I got was a word that went poly something or other. My young guide explained that this was the glue we needed, and that a shoe repairman in the market had some. So we went off to find him. This time it was an older man squatting on a bit of pavement, near where we'd got off the bus. I went through the same pantomime, and then he produced a small battered round tin, which must have once had some food stuff in it, but now had a couple of inches of dark treacly glue in the bottom. He took the patches off, cleaned them with a flat file, and then spread some of the glue with a stick and his fingers around each hole. He waited for the glue to go tacky, and then put the patches back on and for good luck walloped each of them with a hammer on a small anvil which he held between his feet. I asked if I could buy the rest of the glue as insurance against future holes, but he was reluctant. I guess he would have been parting with the small part of the local shoe repair market he had cornered. I returned to collect Ajahn Suchito still the object of attention of several locals, despite the fact he hadn't moved for over an hour. We thanked our guide and set off for the stupa, which we could see looming up beyond the town. It was like the cremation stupa at Kushinagar, but bigger, a great dome of dull red bricks. There must once have been a surface layer of facing bricks, but they'd long gone.
and the exposed underlaying bricks stepped upward haphazardly with gaps of earth and grass to the top. The first thing I did when we got there was to climb it. It was higher than the surrounding trees and there were views all around. A slight breeze rustled the treetops. The sun was about to set in the west and the slanting light picked out a pair of nesting stalks in the tree opposite. It was the half moon that night and I reckon this was going to be a great place to sit up till midnight. I wouldn't fall asleep here. Achen Suchito Circumambulating the stupa, the syllables of the mantra of homage chiming in with each footstep, that still point re-established itself in my heart. I felt grateful and refreshed as the bodily sensation and the mental giddiness ceased. Here, where the mantra turns, is the stupa, the sacred axis that is both the beginning and the end of the world and the indicator of the path beyond. Around this axis three times the mantra led us, three times around the blackened brick mountain and then into meditation on one of its terraces. The stupa was higher than a large house and must once have been even higher to judge from the width of the base. Currently the grass that had covered it for centuries was gradually being picked off by workers from the Archaeological Survey of India. From the round summit that was the present peak of the stupa, I could see over the surrounding flat expanse of fields. India looked golden and benevolent. A slight breeze added to the softness of the late afternoon sun. The Shokan pillar, a mile away, with the fair spread around it, looked like a set of toys abandoned by a child after play. Why create monuments? Why drag fifty tons of pillar through two hundred miles of forest erected here? But why also the massive stupa? Who built this here some six or seven hundred years after Ashoka? Why the massive temples of ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt or Mesoamerica? Why the colossal stone Buddha images of China and Afghanistan? How? is easy enough, as the Buddha commented, volition is action, what the will determines becomes a reality. What is significant is the view that determines that will. Nowadays our view is that sensory existence is the reality of life. Accordingly, our technology shapes the world to make this sojourn on the planet as comfortable as possible. But in some societies, Mortal life is held to be essentially imperfect and part of a divine order that goes beyond death. That technology develops accordingly. Ashoka, a man touched by nobility, attempted to establish this view in proclamation 
and edicts carved in stone. Beloved of the gods speaks thus, Happiness in this world and the next is difficult to obtain without much love of Dhamma, much self-examination, much respect, much fear of evil, and much enthusiasm. But through my instruction, this regard for Dhamma and love of Dhamma has grown day by day and will continue to grow. And my officers of high, low and middle rank are practicing and conforming to Dhamma and are capable of inspiring others to do the same. And these are my instructions to protect with Dhamma, to make happiness through Dhamma and to guard with Dhamma. Noble deeds of Dhamma and the practice of Dhamma consist of having kindness, generosity, truthfulness, purity, gentleness and goodness increase among the people. For a pilgrim at least, India is still capable of manifesting Ashokan officers. At this juncture it was Mr. Chowdhury, the superintendent of the stupa. He was duty-bound to politely remind us that it was not allowed to spend the night on the ancient monument. However, when we had completed our evening meditation, he would put us up for the night. I am house, he said, modestly, with a wiggle of his head. Hindi has no word for have and uses the word to be instead. We thought he would wait up for us and so cut our half-moon vigil short at ten-thirty. The smile and the waggle of the head were indeed patiently waiting by a small house near the stupa. They indicated some stone slabs for us to recline on outside the front door. In the morning they appeared in the company of glasses of hot tea. It was Mr. Chowdhury who retrieved my cantankerous sleeping mat. Having proved its unswerving hostility by deflating again in the night, the thing decided to make a break for it during our circumambulation following the morning puja. We returned to the terrace to find it gone. It was a relief to have one less performance to go through every day. The Dharma rarely lets you off the hook so easily. Mr. Chowdhury lined up his gang of blank-faced workers and made gentle inquiries. After a pause... Somebody's arm came from behind his back with a wretched mat in his hand. Much smiling and head-wagging ensued, with Nick showing them photos of England that we had brought and handing over a photo of ourselves to our host. We noted Mr. Chowdhury's name and address. It would be good to send him a letter when we returned to England. The mat promised to present further repetitions of the cycle of endeavour, expectation of comfort, and disappointment. But before it had the opportunity, we hitched a ride on a truck back to Betia in order to continue our walk south. There, we met another officer of the law. Mr. Mishra was the manager of the State Bank of India in Betia. As such, he arrived in an unhurried manner at the bank an hour or so after it opened. It was unusual to have two Englishmen in the bank, especially one with red hair and a beard, and the other shaven-headed and wearing a brown robe. The bearded one, Dr. Scott, wanted to change a traveller's cheque, which was impossible, 
as the branch was not authorised. It had been authorised once, but now it would be necessary to take a bus to Mazafapur or to Patna. Dr. Scott, however, only had two rupees. Mr. Mishra told one of the clerks to bring tea and listened to us talk about our pilgrimage, nodding slightly. Yes, it would not be possible to get to Mazafapur, let alone Patna, by means of two rupees. Occasionally throwing queries in Hindi to various clerks who responded by bustling around with sheets of paper which he stirred on his desk, he slowly and regretfully reiterated that the bank was not authorised to change travellers' cheques. You will be walking for six months? On foot? Yes, on foot. We walk from Lumbini in Nepal. Acha. But my attention was resting on the Roman numerals of the office clock. Eleven o'clock. Feeble speculations on food. However, Mr. Mishra's eyes, peering through the thick-rimmed spectacles, had a calming effect, and the scene seemed to be unfolding in some way. The scurrying of the clerks indicated that. There was some debate about exchange rates while Mr. Mishra examined one of Nick's cheques. They used to be able to change travellers' cheques, he commented, but, and more, slightly heated exchanges with the clerks, now it was not possible. When the hands of the clock moved past twelve, I relaxed. We could forget about eating for the day. Waiting eventually cuts through the tendons of personal motivation and lets things take their natural course. Mr. Mishra's pen methodically wove across various papers, and a figure was produced. Nick signed his cheque and received two hundred and something rupees. The conversation continued on various topics. Mr. Mishra, chin resting on one hand, woolen hat neatly balanced on his head, regretted that the bank was unable to change money. Therefore, he had given us 200 rupees of his own money. He would try to get reimbursed by changing the cheque via the branch in Patna. Meanwhile, he wished us good fortune on our pilgrimage. We walked out of Betia in the heat of the day, heading more or less south towards Dorya Araraj, site of another Shokun pillar, and Vaishali, the old capital of the Republic of the Lichavis, and a place much loved by the Buddha. The presence of the two Ashokan pillars suggests that this route must have been a pilgrim's way between Patna, Ashoka's capital, and the Buddhist holy places of Vaishali and Lumbini. Fashien and Xuanzang might have proceeded along this very route in search of scriptures to bring back to China. To me, buoyed up spiritually by human benevolence and light-headed from the lack of food, it felt like a pilgrim's way. I let the mantra in my mind carry me along.